Happy Wednesday to you all. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs uh, today on the program. Mike's uh, calling the London Knights game in Sarnia tonight. So he's taking the day off from the show. Not the day off entirely, just uh, not doing the show. A little uh, quick to turn around doing the show and then uh, be down to Sarnia and ready to go, even though it's not that far of a drive. But uh, Mike will be back in uh, this chair tomorrow. Knights, by the way, playing their third last game before the holiday break. They're in Sarnia tonight. Host Niagara on Friday, host Erie on Sunday, and get a 12-day break for the holidays. You can hear tonight's game on 980 CFPL. Uh, puck drops just after 7 o'clock. Should be around 7.05. Mike, as always, will have the call for you, and 980 CFPL is your home for the London Knights. In his absence, we've got a busy show for you today. In a few moments, we'll be joined by Gordon Ozinski. He's a planetary geologist, holds the Industrial Research Chair in Earth and Space Exploration at Western University. We're going to talk about the future of Canada's space program, which is a bit in doubt. The agency spent uh, just over $300 million in 2016-2017 based on some budget documents. Sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but in terms of research space exploration, it's quite low. Among developed nations, our per capita spending on uh, our space agency is among the worst in the world. So you may hear that and say, good, but it's a growing issue. I don't think it's good, uh, but it's one we'll talk about in a few moments. Uh, later this hour... Doug Leahy will be in studio. Next Generation Leahy will be performing at uh, London Music Hall tonight. They're on their Christmas tour right now, family band. Many people, I'm sure, are familiar with them. They've been around for generations. Their show, which involves their kids, is getting some pretty good reviews. Speaking of kids, we'll also talk to a 15-year-old Londoner, Aidan Anderson. He's Canada's Prime Minister for a day today. Aidan, as I said, is from London, but he's in Ottawa right now as part of a... Uh, a uh, truly a special experience with the Make-A-Wish Make Foundation. Next act, next hour, we will talk about what you can do, uh, hopefully to prevent falls, illness, and trips to the ER over the holiday season. ERs and hospitals usually see about a 10% increase in the number of visits over the holidays. You can't help it if you fall and break your arm while skiing at Bowler Mountain, for example. But there are some things you can do to prevent getting hurt as best you can. Bowler Mountain, by the way, opens uh, for the season today. They run 3-9, to nine and uh, they really kick into gear, uh, I guess, the next couple of days. But uh, well, over the weekend, it's like 9-4. to four. Check their website for uh, hours of operation because it will uh, vary slightly until the season really gets rolling. We'll talk to a London woman who smoked for decades, made multiple attempts to quit smoking, finally has. Quitting is a popular uh, New Year's resolution. How'd she do it? We'll get into that. wasn't anything crazy, but I think it's a worthwhile conversation. We'll also discuss the rise of alcohol-free beverages. It's a market that's growing faster and bigger than you might think. It's growing so much so that even some of those in the industry are a little surprised. And we'll talk to Ben Brooks from Maple Leaf Foods. They will be hosting an open house at the Best Western Lamplighter uh, tomorrow night to talk about the new plant for London, which is slated to open in 2021 uh, hopefully the earlier part of the year or the spring. But uh, that was uh, the big news uh, last week, and Maple Leaf Foods not wasting any time now in uh, starting a conversation with the community as they work towards uh, that plant opening. Construction on that plant, by the way, will start in the spring, assuming there are no uh, setbacks. We'll also end the program today with an audio gem. So, as I said busy show. We'll take a break. We come back. We'll talk about space with Gordon Ozinski from Western University. 
world-renowned voice on this. He's also behind Space Matters, an effort to raise the profile of space research in Canada. That and more when we return. This is Devin in for Mike on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Let's talk about Canada's space program. We have one. may not seem like it at times, but we do. I think people are aware of some of what Canada has done in space in general, but not everything. We know about the astronauts. We probably know about Canadarm. People know about Canadarm. I think it dies off after that, and it's a shame because we do a lot in space, or historically we have, but that may be in jeopardy. You probably have heard about David St. Jacques uh, going up to the International Space Station. That is pretty cool. But there's more to it than that, even though the David St. Jacques news is pretty important. Uh, neglect over the past 10 years has left the Canadian Space Agency in a rough spot with dwindling budgets, leading to fewer Canadian involvement in international space missions and more and more Canadians going elsewhere to do their research. Gordon Ozinski is a planetary geologist who holds the Industrial Research Chair in Earth and Space Exploration at Western University. He joins me now to talk about this. Thanks for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. I was uh, reading about the Canadian Space Agency the other day and the efforts by Don't Let Go Canada, uh, that group, to push for more money, for more research, uh, for, for projects. Also, your project, uh, Space Matters. All of a sudden, I'm a little worried about the future of the Canadian space program. Should I be? Uh, to be totally honest, I think yeah, all Canadians should be should be a little worried and concerned about the future of the Canadian space program. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's it's an incredibly exciting time with, of course, David Saint Jack up in the International Space Station, and uh, you may have heard of the Osiris Rex spacecraft that arrived safely at the asteroid Bennu with a Canadian instrument on board. Um, but it's very bittersweet moment because you know that's almost it. Um, you know, the tank is is empty, as they say, and we have very little in the pipeline in terms of future missions. Um, and at the same time, our international partners are making big steps towards exploring Mars and the Moon and uh, and beyond, and Canada has been asked to the table. Um, but right now, you know, we don't have the resources, or even more importantly than that is this space strategy that uh, we've essentially been been without for well over a decade now. How did it get to, to that point? Is Was it uh, government neglect, I guess, is part of it, but uh, how do we get to a point where, uh, you know, because I think when people, you know, Canadians think of what we've done in space, you know, uh, the Canadarm comes to mind, but that was a while ago. Uh, we have different, uh, you know, Canadians who have gone to space. Uh, that gets a lot of attention, but we don't hear about some of the other projects, and there's a lot of other projects Canadians have been involved in and could be involved in. So how did we get to this point? Oh, you know, you know I wish I knew. Uh, I wish I had the magic answer, um, which would maybe help with, uh, you know, solving, uh, addressing the situation we're in. Um, I th- you know, it's been long-term, though. Um, I think, you know, it has been one of uh, neglect and just complacency. Um, and it is on the part of the government, but it's on, you know, it's really all of us involved in the space program. Um, you know, as you say, most Canadians are probably familiar with Chris Hadsfield's last mission, with um, the Canada Arm. But as you say, there's a whole slew of other missions, even some recent ones that Canadians have been involved in. 
Um, and we don't do a good job. We don't. So I'm speaking for myself here, too, of telling Canadians, you know, about all the cool and exciting things that we're doing in space. Um, you know, I think more Canadians are, are familiar and know about NASA than even the fact that we have the Canadian Space Agency and, you know, our history, too. Um, and this is one of the big things we're hoping to do through Space Matters is just raise awareness of what we've done as Canadians. Um, you know, Canada was a third country in space, and I don't think many Canadians know that. I didn't know that. No, I mean that's that's kind of crazy. I mean, so I mean, we're not going to yeah. be I mean, we're not going to be NASA, but what could uh, the Canadian Space Agency be? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're not going to be uh, number one in the world in terms of spending on space, um, but. You know, when we, we our kind of status in the world of space has definitely dropped in the last uh, decade or so. You know, in terms of the percentage of our GDP that Canada spends on space, uh, we've dropped from something like uh, number seven or eight down to number 18. So, you know, we used to be within the, the G8 countries, and now there's many other nations have realized that, you know, space is critical to them. And you would actually think Canada would be leading the charge, given our geography. You know, space is, this isn't just about exploring uh, distant worlds. Um, you know, the use of satellites to monitor um, climate change, to monitor, to help with shipping and agriculture. You know, we have such a big country that you could argue space is more critical for us than probably any other nation except perhaps uh, Russia on Earth. And so, um, the, you know, the good news is if we address this, if we... Uh, you know, really come to the table. Um, there is a big role for Canadians to play. Um, you know, we are well known for our robotics. We're well known for instrumentation. Our, our astronomy community is very, uh, you know, world-leading. Um, we have a lot of analog sites. So a lot of our geography lends itself to actually understanding other worlds, worlds by going up to places like the Arctic that I do all, all summer. So, you know, there is good news if uh, we can kind of uh, address the issues we face right now, the opportunities are there. Um, but it is important to note that, you know, the door is slowly closing. You can see it off in the distance, and pretty soon it will be slammed shut unless we agree and say, you know, yes, Canada is going to contribute to the gateway, to this uh, outpost around the moon. Um, that door is going to shut over the next year, and then, you know, it'll be really hard to get back around the table if we don't commit now. That was going to be my next, like, my next question. If the door shuts for all these different projects, can we open it up again, or what's that process potentially like? I mean, it would be incredibly difficult. Um, you know, uh, the you've made, NASA is really moving forward quite aggressively with um, this return of humans to the moon, and this first big step is this gateway, which is essentially, you know, the next international space station. It's not around Earth, but it's going to be around or in the vicinity of the moon. And, you know, they've laid out when the first launches are going to be, which is coming up, you know, in the next two or three years. And so, you know, if we're not at the table now saying, yes, we'll do robotics, they're not going to wait a year or two. They're going to go to the next country or the next company. And so, you know, we might be let back in, but then, you know, what will we do? We might have to literally buy flights for astronauts as opposed to kind of earning them through being at the table and contributing things like robotics. We are joined on the line by Gordon Ozinski, the Industrial Research Chair in Earth and Space Exploration at Western University. I remember, uh, you know, this is a number of years ago, maybe more six or seven years ago, this, during the Republican presidential primaries in 2002 or before the, 2000, before the election, 
years years ago, uh, Newt Gingrich uh, commented about how he wanted to set up uh, colonies on the moon and people made fun of him for that. And then uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about how, well, you know, it's not that silly that we'd want to set something. It, it sounds silly at first blush, but when you think about uh, what's involved in that, uh, what can be learned from that, it suddenly is not so silly. So that's my long way of just asking, like, what can we learn from space, space exploration that can, can help us on Earth? I mean, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, it's one we kind of, I think, those of us in the space exploration business ask ourselves. And, you know, the short answer is a lot. Um, you know, I would liken... Uh, you know, a lunar outpost. Um, although, I mean, the European Space Agency actually have a program looking at this, and they actually call it the Moon Village. And, you know, like you said, it sounds perhaps a bit silly and far-fetched, but, uh, you know, in the coming decades, um, there is a view that we'll have a permanent, you know, I would call it more of an outpost as opposed to a settlement. And I would liken it to, you know, perhaps what we do in Antarctica, where, you know, there are permanent research stations you know, people are there 365 days a year. You know, they're doing primarily science, um, but it's also, you know, a footprint and uh, gives us a presence in Antarctica in that case or, or on the moon. Um, so, you know, first of all, there's a ton of science to do. You know, Apollo didn't answer everything. There's a lot of good science to be done, um, both about the moon. And the moon is a critical uh, piece of understanding the solar system. You know, the moon... Um, has a lot of old rocks that we just don't have on Earth, and so it can help us understand uh, the beginnings of Earth, even the origin of life on Earth. Um, then there's all sorts of neat things, like, for example, um, the astronomy community are very uh, interested and excited because if you put a telescope on the far side of the Moon, which is never seen by Earth, it's outside of the zone of radio interference from Earth. And so you know, just remote astronomy outposts, you know, we hear about Hubble, and telescopes out in space, well, it's actually probably easier to station it on the moon but on the far side where it's, you know, a very quiet, radio-quiet environment. And so there's lots of things like that. And then, you know, importantly, too, is the moon is a stepping stone beyond, uh, to essentially, you know, Mars and beyond. Um, you know, we think we can extract resources from the moon to make rocket fuel and water for, for humans. And the nature of things is that it's way cheaper and easier to launch things because of the moon's lower gravity from the moon uh, than it is from Earth. You know, the reason space travel is not that common is just getting away from Earth's gravity is so difficult and so expensive, whereas it's a lot easier to do on the moon. So, you know, there's a lot of exciting things. starts out with fundamental research, um, but there's a whole slew of other things looking to you know, future decades. We are joined on the line by Gordon Lazinski from Western University. What are some of the things we're doing right now that you mentioned earlier that are pretty cool that maybe people aren't too aware of? Uh, so in terms of what Canada is doing in space, uh, it has been a busy uh, few weeks. Um, uh, the big two things, of course, I think, is David St. Jacques' mission to the International Space Station. You know, we first heard from him um, a few days ago, his first uh, teleconference from the space station. I know we'll be hearing a lot more from him and... Uh, there's a few activities that I'm involved with that uh, we can't really talk about now, but very early in the new year, um, there'll be some big public engagement exercises there. Um, OSIRIS-REx is a really exciting mission. So this mission actually launched a few years ago, which is why most people haven't heard about it, and it took a few years to get to this asteroid Bennu, and it's actually a sample return mission. Um, and so they're going to collect samples and bring them back to Earth for study. 
So on board that spacecraft is a essentially a laser system that will map in intricate detail the surface of the asteroid and help guide where we'll select samples. And there's quite a few Canadian scientists, and uh, MDA Maxar built this OLA instrument. There's a Cyrus-Rex laser altimeter. And so, you know, those are, those are two big um, recent things. Um, there's a Canadian involvement, um, not in terms of instruments, but in terms of science on the InSight lander, which is that NASA's most recent uh, mission to Mars. Um, just, you know, a couple of weeks ago it landed, and, you know, you may have listened to the, the sound of wind on Mars um, for the first time ever. And that's not its primary goal, but uh, it's a very exciting mission, too. So, again, lots of excitement right now. But what we want to make people aware of is that, you know, again, the tank is getting empty and we really need to figure out what we're going to do in the next 10 years. Well, to that point, I, I mentioned that piece I was reading earlier. It also talked about how we have a lot of, you know, Canadian researchers who are going elsewhere uh, to do their work just because they can't do it here. Yeah, you know, it's it's a uh, it's one of the biggest challenges I face, and one of the most disheartening things about being a professor, I think, is uh, you know seeing colleagues leave, but also students. Um, you know, we have fantastic programs at the undergraduate and the graduate level. You know, we're graduating people with PhDs uh, who are, are world class, and you know, a lot of these you know, these super keen and uh, brilliant students want to work on missions. And right now, there are so few opportunities in Canada that most of them uh, are heading off to the U.S. or Europe. And, you know, there's many from my lab. Um, but most of them want to come back. And so, you know, we're, we, are, we do have this kind of brain drain of space talent right now that, again, if we have these mission opportunities, we'll both keep them, keep them here after they graduate, uh, but also, you know, bring back some of our, our overseas Canadian friends, too. Do you think the federal government is receptive uh, to investing more in our space program? I, I think they are receptive. Um, Minister Baines has you know, talked about uh, releasing a space strategy very soon. Um, you know, they, they face competing priorities, of course. But, I mean, I think the big thing about space is, you know, people have said, you know, you waste money on a space program. Well, I mean, not a, not a cent of that gets spent in space. You know, it's on highly skilled jobs here in Canada. Um, a lot of the innovations that come out for space, you know, you asked me about that earlier. Um, you know, we face a lot of challenges in the north in remote communities. Uh, communication, you know, life support systems, you know, so on the International Space Station, they have to recycle as much of their uh, water and waste as they can. Um, and we're getting really good at it on the space station and we'll have to be good on the moon um, you know, growing things up in space. It's a really harsh environment. There's no reason why we couldn't turn those technologies for, you know, greenhouses and uh, connecting communities in the north. Um, instead of coming down to a hospital in Ottawa from none of it, um, you know, we have the capability to do, you know, remote health and telehealth uh, based on our work on the space station. So there really is a lot of you know, benefits and spin-offs that come out from uh, these investments in space. Well, I, I hope we make them. Um, I'm, I'm interested in space and ex space exploration. I started following the uh, the Twitter account that uh, was for the for the new uh, rover on on Mars and saw you know what the the Martian Martian uh, sunrise. It looked pretty cool. There's there's just there's endless opportunities for 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 things for us to learn something. 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a bit of a shout out to Space Methods that you mentioned right at the beginning. Um, so this is a new thing that we're leading here at Weston in partnership with the Canadian Association of Science Centers and many other organizations across Canada. And our goal is to really, you know, raise the awareness of what Canada has done in space, what we're doing now uh, to give teachers the resources to, you know, help them teach about space in schools. And so you can check out that website. It's just spacematters.ca and, uh, you know, follow that. Follow us on Twitter, too. And, uh, you know, we've got blogs and things from astronauts and scientists, and we're really just trying to excite the Canadian public about, you know, all things space. Gordon, I appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks, Devin, for having me on the show. That's Gordon Nazinski, the Industrial Research Chair in Earth and Space Exploration at Western University. We need to pause when we return. More of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike's doing the London Knights game. You can hear that on 980 CFPL tonight. Uh, puck drop just after 7 o'clock. Knights in Sarnia to play the Sting. It's uh, starting to feel like uh, Christmas outside. Uh, Boulder Mountain opening up today, and so uh, ski bums can get out and hit the snopes. One of the earliest starts in uh, southern Ontario for a ski hill. So it's starting to feel like uh, Christmas. Something about uh, being outside, too, this time of year, which is uh, pretty nice. I mean, shoveling the snow, not the greatest, uh, but when it's nice and cold and it's off to the side, uh, much better. Uh, Nice feeling just to get out there and uh, uh, be with friends and family and, and, uh, and, and enjoy the season. Sometimes maybe you go to a concert or an event, and with that in mind, tonight at the London Music Hall, uh, the Next Generation Leahy Christmas 2018 Tour will be rolling into town. Uh, we are joined by uh, Doug Leahy and his uh, daughter Evelyn. Uh, thanks for coming in, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Uh, you are a, a family with, like, decades of performing. Um, what's it like? Like at Christmas time, normally there are some people who say, you know what? I want to get away from my family as fast as I can. (laughs) You guys go the other way and, uh, spend uh, even more time together. Well, you know, Christmas is a, is a wonderful time at our place. And, uh, it's a question that we probably get asked the most is what is Christmas like at your house? And, uh, so we try to bring that to the stage. We try to, uh, give people an example of what it might be like at our house. So not only do we play Christmas music, uh, at our place, but uh, we we play a lot of different styles, and that all takes uh, place on on stage. And uh, uh, with with uh, the young kids involved in the show, uh, the energy is just building like crazy. Getting so excited for Christmas, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, the show that we have, and uh, we really enjoy doing it. Now they they give kind of a list of all the different um, uh, talents you have, Evelyn. Uh, like so, correct me. You got fiddle. Yes. You've got piano. Piano. Sing and we step dance. That's that's more than I can do. <laughs> which of those, which is your favorite to perform on stage? Um, I really like playing the fiddle. It's um, in step dancing. It's just, it's a lot of energy and it's really fun to do. And you can make up stuff. So yeah, it's really fun. And how old are you? I'm eight. Okay. So you can, you can do far more musically than I ever could at the age of eight. Uh, you know, your, your family has been involved. Is there, is there any kind of pressure to live up to... You know what? What has the different iterations of? of Not at all. Uh, the 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 pressure. Um, the kids are 
surrounded by music and they do it naturally. And that's how we got started. We, we never intended on going out and touring as a family. Uh, the kids love music, start playing music, and all of a sudden people start saying, when are they going to get their opportunity? And, you know, I look at how I got my opportunity. It was the same thing. My parents played, and all of a sudden they recognized, uh, now it's time for the, the for the kids to take over. And, and that that's a, a very... Um, um, it's a great feeling that I have and my wife have that our kids can do it so well and that they enjoy it. And uh, that's the thing about the show. We're, we're not doing it uh, be- because it's, uh, you know, fun or it's part of a legacy. We're doing it because people really want it and the kids really love doing it. And although they're young, um, when people come and see what they're doing, the, you know, that, that, that that's maybe one of the things that... Um, we have to work on a little bit is that people hear the ages of the kids and they think, oh, this is a kid show. But when they see it, that's when they say, oh, I wish I had brought this person. I wish this person had come to see this show. So, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a great experience and it, it's going to hit the stage tonight and we're, we're, we're ready. It's for the whole family though, like kids, but also adults, all, all welcome. All, all welcome. And uh, so many parents thank us after the show saying, uh, my my child is now inspired to go home and practice, or my child wants to go learn how to play the fiddle or how to dance. And uh, those those are some of the biggest compliments that we receive is when when you affect someone in such a positive way. Uh, Evelyn, do you have kids who come up to you and say, you know, I want to kind of be like you and, and play the maybe not the fiddle, but any any instrument whatsoever? Yeah, some of the kids. Yeah, some of my age, like my age, sometimes come up. Yes. I played a little piano when I was a kid. Is is that easier or that or the fiddle? What's what's easier to learn? I think the piano, but it's tough. Yeah, I don't know. So how do you kind of how do you put together this type of a a concert? Because I mean, I'm, I'm, I I saw some videos because I was just looking to see kind of what you guys do, and I saw yes. just how high energy it is. There's a lot involved. So how do you how do you put this all together? Well, there's a lot involved, but we like I say, we try to bring our our living room to the stage. And uh, a big part of it is song and, and instrumental pieces, a lot of Celtic music. But there are a lot of different tastes as well that everyone likes. And uh, so, you know, you, you, you put it together based on you, you, you go out and you try stuff and the, the audience gives you feedback. And, and that's what you kind of operate on when you're on stage is, is uh, building a connection with your audience. And, and when they respond, you start to realize and it becomes fun and, and, and you know what they want or what, what works. But uh, uh, for us, we're at the point now where, you know, my wife Jennifer and I have been kind of directing the, the group or what we do. Uh, now the, 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 all the kids are saying, let's try this, let's do that. There are pieces that I don't even play in anymore. I don't even know them. I'm not good enough to play in some <laughs> of them. And uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. They're taking it over. Uh, Mom and Dad are doing less, and that's great. So aside from Evelyn, we've got Adele, Gregory, Angus, Cecilia, Joseph. Uh, who is the most talented of all of you, would you say? Whoa. <laughs> Um, it's normally the oldest because they have more experience, but sometimes it isn't. So I think probably Adele, but. Oh, wow. See, <laughs> wise beyond your ears. I thought you were going to say yourself. And you know what? I wouldn't have faulted you for that. You're supposed to say dad. No. <laughs> uh, so uh, you've performed like everywhere, right? You guys, Canada, United States, but also around all around the world. I have performed around the world. The Next Generation Leahy has just been uh, to 
North America, basically. But we've been asked to go to Ireland, to China, to Scotland. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to start making some of those things happen uh, just because of scheduling and, and already being uh, booked at places has has not allowed us to go across seas yet. But uh, we're looking at it now and and uh, the, everyone gets very excited. that The music has given them this opportunity to travel and uh, they love it. And it's it's one of the things that inspires them to want to play and, and they, they, the, the reward of their, their work or um, their practicing is traveling, is uh, seeing so many wonderful places. When you get asked to go to these places, are you more proud as, as a parent or as, you know, part of the, the, the musical group? I, I think I'm, 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 I don't know if I want to use the word proud, but I, I, it makes me feel really good that um, the children enjoy music and what, what it's doing for them. Uh, I often say our kids love playing sports as well. They all play hockey and soccer and stuff. And that's great. But, you know, uh, usually when you're playing sports, you're competing. You're, you're trying to beat someone. You're trying to win all the time. And, and uh, with music, you often are sharing it. And so to think of our children growing up and having their own families and being able to share this with so many people, and uh, music has the ability to, to, to bring out everything in anyone. It can make people cry. It can make them happy. It can make them sad. It, it has all these emotions. And uh, when, when you play, as I say, by heart, when you're feeling the music, uh, the crowd will respond. And uh, I, I find that the kids are at that point now where the quality in the music is what moves them. It's not about getting up and, uh, you know, playing something fun or just getting through the show. They really feed off off the quality of what they're doing and how the audience responds. So I, for me, that's 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 the best. You're at the uh, London Music Hall tonight. Where are you off to uh, next? We are playing in Burlington then tomorrow night. Then we're up to Owen Sound. <laughs> we're over to Brantford on Sunday. And, yeah, it just, keep, it just keeps going. Well, uh, London Music Hall tonight, uh, if you want to check it out, I believe there might be uh, still a few uh, tickets left. It's always it's a, it's a show that's getting uh, rave reviews, so uh, I'd uh, recommend people check it out. We need to uh, break. When we come back, we'll have more of uh, London Live. This is uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Uh, this is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. You know what would be a great job? Working at Make-A-Wish. The people who work there do great things and have a chance to impact multiple lives in a positive way. One of those lives they will impact is a 15-year-old teen from London named Aiden. He has a heart condition that makes him eligible for a Make-A-Wish experience. He is currently in the middle of a five-day trip to Ottawa, and today he will be Canada's Prime Minister for a day. It's quite the experience, and to talk about it, we are joined by Canada's newest Prime Minister. How's it going? Uh, it's going good. How about yourself? I'm uh, doing very good, but I think uh, you're going to have a, a a better day than I will today, a better day than a lot of people. It sounds like uh, it's going to be uh, quite the day. It's already been a pretty interesting trip, huh? Uh, yes, it has been. It's been very interesting staying at the uh, Chateau Laurier. You, I just want to go back a couple of days. You, you knew you were going to Ottawa, but you didn't know everything that was going to be happening this week, right? No, I didn't. Yeah, I knew I was going, but I didn't know everything that was going to happen. So uh, tell me uh, your reaction when you started to learn about what you'd be doing uh, this week. Uh, I was very excited because I learned that I'd be doing some fun exercises with the RCMP. 
And uh, how did you, uh, in terms of uh, becoming prime minister for today, how would how was your response for that? Uh, I was very excited because uh, we did it at a restaurant that I really liked, and the manager gave me free food as well when I found out. But uh, I thought I was celebrating my uh, mom's birthday, but uh, it was a surprise. I can imagine. Not many people get to be uh, Prime Minister for a day. How does it feel? Uh, it felt good. It felt really good to be Prime Minister for a day. I'm told you have a, a passion for politics. How did that start? Um, it starts basically with the fact that uh, I was interested in politics uh, when I could understand it. And uh, I just like learning about our country. I like learning about, like, how much money we're spending on what sort of things. So, like, between spending money on health care or schools to uh, spending money on uh, national security and defense and uh, what's going on in the House of Commons. Have you uh, been to Ottawa before? I've been only very, very briefly, so not long to see everything that's in Ottawa. Have you been to Ottawa before? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I have family out here in Ottawa, so... I would come out here a lot. Um, I recently came out here about maybe the last year uh, to see some family. But you've seen like Parliament Hill in, in person before and, and kind of what that architecture is like? Yeah, I've uh, seen Parliament Hill. I've been to the War Museum here in Ottawa. I've been to many different places here. So in terms of this week in particular, what have you uh, done and seen so far? Um... I got to see Prime Minister Trudeau's private airplane. I got to go see the uh, Governor General's private residence. I was also allowed to go to the RCMP uh, horse stables, but they keep their horses for shows. And I also did a uh, hostage situation exercise with the RCMP Special Forces Unit. Um, and uh, I also did a scenario of what it'd be like to be the Prime Minister and how uh, security would handle um, anything, if anything, went bad. When you were at the uh, Governor General's uh, residence, uh, did you have a chance to maybe peek in some of the closets just to see what's around there? Uh, no, but I did find out that uh, one of the rooms, I'm pretty sure it was the ballroom where the uh, Prime Ministers get sworn in, uh, that uh, it was still some of the original crown molding from that time and that uh, there was a chandelier that was a gift from the British government that is made out of complete crystal. Wow. Uh, you've obviously, you, you're, you know, just talk, when you're talking about why you kind of like politics, um, have you ever thought about what it'd be like to be Prime Minister for, for more than a day and what you'd want to do? Um, yes. Um, basically, what I would want to do is uh, help other countries who are in a particularly tight spot, like Ukraine or countries in Africa who are being, like, constantly un, like under attack by other people. I just want to help out those people who just want to live and help bring justice to the world. That's a, that's a good uh, mission to have uh, for today. looks like it's going to be uh, quite the day. Uh, looking forward to uh, meeting the uh, Prime Minister and everything. Uh, yes, I am very excited to be the Prime Minister and to go and meet uh, Justin Trudeau in person. I believe you're going to be doing some of the things like uh, going to to question period and everything else, right? Uh, yes, um, I get to ask him a couple questions um, and 
just talk with him. I get to sit down, talk with him, ask him any questions that I so please. And that's pretty much it for the questioning period. That's, I mean, to participate in question periods, some people, you know, most people watch it on TV. Some people who go to Ottawa, you know, go to the gallery and watch it. Uh, being able to participate in the way you are is an incredibly special kind of thing. It's, uh, that is going to be an experience. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I uh, hope you, I hope you enjoy today. I hope you enjoy the, uh, the uh, the entire trip. Uh, just before we go, what do we need to do, do you think, to get more kids to be interested in politics the way you are? Um, I'm honestly not really sure, but um, before we go, I would very much like to thank uh, Make-A-Wish Foundations. I'd also like to ask people, we are doing a special event um, where if you order the Make-A-Wish socks, uh, when you pay, when you pay um, the donations for the socks, go to uh, Make a Wish to help out with with wish granting, and we're trying to get tons of people to do pictures on uh, social media of them wearing their special Make a Wish dress socks. That's a a great uh, a great uh, way to end this. Uh, we'll make sure people are aware of that. Uh, Aiden, uh, thanks for your time today, and enjoy being Prime Minister for a day. I definitely will, and thank you very much. That's Aiden, Canada's Prime Minister for a day. He is having an experience, and I'm going to be completely serious when I say this. I'm jealous. So I didn't want to go over too much of what his itinerary is for the rest of the trip because I don't want to spoil anything for him. He he knows what's the plan for today, but uh, there's some surprises on the way for tomorrow as well. So here is what he's done so far. He arrived in Ottawa on Monday, was greeted by the RCMP and the Prime Minister's protection detail at the airport. He's staying at the uh, Fairmont Chateau Laurier and got a formal Prime Minister's welcome from hotel staff and management there. Yesterday, the RCMP and the Prime Minister's protection detail arranged for a full day of activities. He explained some of that uh, during the interview. Today, he'll be on Parliament Hill. He's going to get a special tour of Parliament. He will attend question period in the House of Commons. His name will be mentioned. He's going to be spending most of today with uh, London West MP Kate Young. Aiden will also hold his own news conference. He's going to attend a dinner. He's going to spend some time with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Then tomorrow, he will spend a full day with the Canadian Army. He's going to shadow the commander. He will also be outfitted with his own uniform and will be named an honorary lieutenant colonel for the day. He will end his day with a visit to the Canadian War Museum and meet with their CEO. Most of what he's been doing has been kept secret from him, although he's started to learn about it now because trip's almost over. But based on how much he likes politics, that should be a blast. Uh, we need to pause. When we return, more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Devin Peacock in for uh, Mike today. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. Just want to uh, tee up the next hour of the program. We'll be talking to Dr. Amit Shah from Southwest uh, Lynn, talking about uh, ways you can uh, prevent uh, a trip to the hospital or or to the ER. Holiday season is uh, now upon us. Winter not officially here, but effectively it is. During uh, the Christmas season, hospitals in the London region tend to see a bit of a spike in uh, people going to the hospital, people going to the ER, about 10% more than usual. So we'll talk to uh, Dr. Meet Shah about that. Also talk to a woman who uh, has uh, been uh, 
smoke-free for about six months. Took her a while to get to that point. How'd she do it? She'll share uh, her story. An interesting uh, preview just for uh, New Year's resolutions, which I know uh, uh, many people do partake in. Not always successful, but if you do it right, it can uh, really uh, help you out. We'll also talk to uh, Terry Donnelly about, uh, he's the CEO of uh, Hill Street uh, Beverages Company, talking about uh, non-alcoholic beverages. They're on the rise. They got into the business of it, then realized just how many people were in the business because the uh, the uh, number of people in it were growing uh, quite uh, quite quickly. So an interesting little uh, uh, case there. So that and more on the other side of the news. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. There are a lot of places I like to go during the holidays, but uh, the hospital is not one of them. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Hospitals in the London region are bracing for what could be a busy Christmas. It's not uncommon to see ER visits spike by about 10% in London right before, during, and after Christmas. On the one hand, we do get out more often, which is good to get exercise. On the other hand, we need to take care of ourselves. Staying healthy over the holidays can be easier said than done. To talk about this, we're joined by Dr. Amit Shah. He's the emergency department lead for the Southwest Lynn. Thanks for your time today. It's a pleasure, Devin. Well, I thought it was uh, interesting, this reminder about, uh, you know, uh, staying healthy, being careful over the holidays, because we do tend to see increases in people going to the hospital in general, uh, the ER specifically over the holidays. Uh, not uh, unexpected, but I guess uh, we do tend to see that spike over the holidays. Yes, we see it annually. Uh, it's a known, predictable spike that we see uh, every every year. It generally starts up on uh, Boxing Day, uh, and we see a slow rise towards that uh, in the month of December, uh, and and we see an increased. Uh, a uh, number of visits to the emergency department through uh, December, January, February, and often into March. What are some of the most common reasons uh, for people going to the hospital and going to the ER? Well, the the biggest uh, annual reason for the spike is, of course, flu season. So uh, actual flu is caused by influenza and uh, uh, can be prevented by taking the flu shot. So we'd like to emphasize some prevention there for people. Um, the flu tends to peak around the uh, holiday period and afterwards, and we see uh, a rise of anywhere from 10 to 30% of emergency visits um, going up secondary to people with uh, uh, respiratory complaints. And in, in frail people, in people with impaired immune systems, it can actually cause pneumonia or serious illness, which causes an increase in admissions as well, thus testing our hospital capacity. It is, uh, well, it's not technically winter yet, but it is the winter season. Bowler Mountain here in London is opening today for with skiing. Uh, with more snow comes people going out onto uh, hills to maybe sled and everything, and you do get some injuries uh, from, from that, I assume, as well? Well, you've touched on another area that causes uh, an increase in visits, and that's our uh, Canadian weather in the winter. So the ice and the snow uh, poses a safety hazard, and it's a good time of year for people to think of prevention, you know, some things that will, will actually prevent you having to come to the emergency department. So, for example, uh, when you're skiing or uh, tobogganing or snowboarding, wearing a helmet is essential to prevent head injuries. Uh, when people are out and about in the snow wearing proper footwear, salting the driveway and keeping an eye on where you're going, 
uh, is important. And of course, in vehicles, the big things we like to emphasize are uh, seat belts, uh, getting snow tires on your car, driving appropriately for the winter conditions, and uh, making sure that you're not driving impaired, both with alcohol or with marijuana. It's interesting, you know, the, the key with all of that is prevention with the flu shot. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, if if you're skiing, maybe you have a helmet and you still fall, but the injury is less th- severe than it could have otherwise been. So in some cases, obviously, you know, take as much caution as you can while having fun, but also uh, those precautionary me- measures, uh, you may still be injured, but it may not be as bad as otherwise. Well, you're exactly right. We want people to be active and out enjoying winter. We're Canadian. We should be out there enjoying the snow. But uh, uh, there's a way to do it safely and enjoyably, and no one has fun sitting in the emergency department. So uh, we'd like to prevent that. We are joined on the line by Dr. Amit Shah from the Southwest Lynn. There was a couple of years ago, um, uh, I did something really stupid. Didn't need to go to the hospital in the end. We were able to, to handle it. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were having hors d'oeuvres at home, and I licked a knife and cut my, uh, cut my tongue um, we were, my, my mother's a nurse. We have uh, friends who are doctors able to uh, do some uh, light uh, uh, work to, to didn't have to go to the hospital. But I think one of, one of the questions we had at that time was, well, where do we go? It's, you know, December 23rd, December 24th, that kind of a thing. This is a couple of years ago in Toronto where they had the huge ice storm. So it was a little bit difficult to get around. So I, I wonder if this time of year when there's something that comes up that's maybe not incredibly serious, um, but people treat it as though it might be just because they don't know where to go otherwise, and so they go to the hospital or they go to the ER. Yes, so uh, there are a few other options. First of all, the emergency department is always open for people and available if you're worried that you have an emergency problem and you're seriously ill. So we, we never want people to not come to the eMERGE if they're worried about their condition and they think it's truly emergent. But we'd like people to use common sense. Uh, our emergency department and all of our healthcare resources are uh, valuable resources in limited supply. There are other options for less severe illnesses or concerns. Uh, firstly, there's telehealth that people can call on the phone if they have a question about um, what's going on and they want some advice over the phone by uh, a nurse. Uh, there are, uh, most family practices have after-hours clinics, and the family doctors tell us that those are sometimes underutilized because people don't realize that there are after-hours access clinics attached to their family doctor's office. If their family doctor doesn't provide it, sometimes uh, they've partnered with another clinic so that they all share responsibility after-hours. And uh, if you're part of a family practice, that's worth asking about, particularly over the holiday period. There are some walk-in clinics and um, urgent care resources which are available for people. And uh, in the Southwest Lynn, there's a website that can be accessed uh, online to look up what kind of uh, pharmacies and other resources are available. And we're trying to build that uh, website resource up over time so that uh, it's a go-to point for people uh, over the holiday period. Uh, And in uh, London, we have the urgent care center for cuts and broken bones. That's at St. Joseph's Hospital. So if you need uh, stitches or uh, a broken bone or uh, uh, some other uh, outpatient or walking wounded concern, that's a good place for people to go. Going uh, to the ER, again, if, if, if you need to absolutely go, never not go, but uh, going to the ER for a non-emergency reason uh, can cause problems. I mean, it causes problems for the patient, the hospital, and the, and the nurses and doctors as well. 
Yeah, I mean, the problems are just that uh, no one likes to wait, and we hate to see people waiting in the emergency room, but over the holiday period, our resources are stretched very thin. So we want to use those resources for the people who need it uh, most and, and are in genuine need. So some other tips that uh, people can think about are get their prescriptions filled early ahead of time over the holiday period. Think about what your health needs are and uh, touch base with your own doctor beforehand so you don't run out in the middle of the holiday period. If you have a frail loved one in a nursing home or with some compromised medical conditions, try and touch base with them before Christmas Day and see if they need something done or if you have any health concerns because you'll have a a much easier time addressing those health concerns before or after the holiday period than during the holiday period. Uh, And as you said, if, if there is a genuine emergency concern, then we want to be there for people. You uh, outlined a number of uh, other areas that people can go to, you know, with you know after-hour clinics and whatnot, and how uh, people should be talking to their, you know, their home practice if, if they have one. Do you find people are aware of that kind of thing? Because I think it's something maybe you're you're told initially, and then it maybe it slips from your mind as you go through your day-to-day life. It's very variable, and it depends on uh, the practice and on the patient. But uh, I think uh, you know part of uh, Putting out this outreach message is just letting people know that um, those kinds of resources are often available, and we certainly hear from people coming to the emergency department that they weren't aware of that sometimes. So I think uh, it's a good thing uh, to talk about and uh, let people know that there are other access points um, that they can think about over the holidays, and and maybe investigating those ahead of time and uh, is a worthwhile thing for people to do. How stressful can the holidays be for doctors and nurses? Well, uh, my uh, hats go out. Uh, hat goes off every year uh, to my uh, colleagues who uh, give up their time with their loved ones and uh, um, uh, put time into the hospital. Not just in the emergency department, but uh, uh, in hospitals and clinics, uh, the uh, docs and nurses and support staff who all are working over the holidays, so people can have a self uh, safe and healthy holiday season and. Uh, uh, that that can be a very difficult period, um, not only due to the time away uh, from family, but also due to the volumes and the stresses of sometimes seeing uh, people who have been waiting a substantial amount of time, sometimes people who are less understanding uh, of the wait and that they were dealing with uh, emergency conditions and they have to wait sometimes, and that can be very difficult on staff. That's good advice, uh, Dr. Meet Shaw. Appreciate the time today. Okay, take care. Thanks, and have a safe and uh, happy holiday season. That's Dr. Reed Shaw from the Southwest Lynn. Lynn, of course, stands for Local Health Integration Network. We need to pause when we return more of London Live with Mike Stubbs. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. Do you do New Year's resolutions? I never really found them to be effective, but others may disagree. I recently started going to the gym on a more frequent basis before New Year's because I wanted to develop uh, my new habits before the holiday season began. So if they work for you, that's great. The key part is improving yourself. One of the most popular New Year's resolutions is quitting smoking. 
quitting smoking can be difficult regardless of the time of year. My grandfather always told the story of how he went cold turkey after his cigarette burned his tie. But going cold turkey doesn't work for everyone. Josie Wheatley tried to quit smoking a number of times, but it never quite stuck until it did. She's now motivated to keep it that way based on the fact she was diagnosed with cancer. To talk about her struggle and how she was able to quit smoking, we're now joined by Josie. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome. You know, uh, smoking and trying to quit quit smoking is, a, uh, a, I think, something that we can all uh, deal with and relate to. For those who don't smoke, maybe can you just explain a little bit how difficult it was to quit? Oh, wow. It was extremely difficult, and I've had to uh, do it a few times, uh, at least seven or eight times before I've actually quit completely. I was a long-term smoker, so um, I started really young, thinking it was a cool thing, and um, and it turned out to be a real, real hard habit to uh, to break, and many, many years later. So, When did you start smoking? I started smoking when I was 12 years old, and I'm now 54 years old, and I've been quit for about six months, I would say. When did you start thinking about quitting? Uh, uh, It was uh, about, I would say, seven years ago. Yeah, about seven years ago was when I first, uh, I did my first attempt at quitting, and I was... uh, I would say successful for about um, two years almost, and then I. But that was like off and on. I was doing a month and then starting again, and then two months. Then I managed to almost have two years in the last seven years, and then uh, you know many times like a month and two months, and then now it's been six months, and uh, but I, I feel stronger this time than any other time. So, what was it made you that first want to quit? Uh, what made me first, uh, my son, I have a two-step son, and, uh, and they were a big part of my decision to want to quit and, and live longer. And, and also it was, uh, it was becoming inconvenient to smoke everywhere. I didn't smoke in my house as the kids were growing up, so that was already, you know, having to go outside was um, a challenge for me. And couldn't smoke in the car and all these different things that I didn't want to do around the children uh, made it more inconvenient. When I was alone, I would smoke in the car and I would smoke in the house. Uh, so, But um, not for the first 10 years of, of my stepchildren's life when they lived with me. I, w- I was never a smoker, so um, I never had to deal with it, but I have a lot of friends who uh, who did smoke who had the same type of uh, situation as you, as, you know, trying to quit, uh, and you start, you stop, you start, you stop, you go back and forth. So I can certainly um, I, I can certainly see how difficult it can be. When you're, you know, you, you said it took seven or eight tries, and now you're, you're six months in, and that's great. When you're at a try number four or five, are you just annoyed, and you think, you, do you say, uh, well, you know, screw this, or are you more determined at that point to say, okay, no, we really have to... We have to. We have to quit this. Um, I, I think I was more decided at at that point. Like, uh, I think each and every time I was determined, I didn't want to smoke anymore. But uh, when life got challenging, I I would pick up again. Um, 
like you said, uh, at time four or five, like, let's not try to quit. No, I was always determined to try again, especially after the first time ever able to quit with uh, only using a Nicodorn patch. That was a, like, a, like a huge thing for me because I never thought I was going to be a non-smoker for the rest of my life. I thought I was going to smoke right till the end. And once I tried that one patch and I put it on and I didn't smoke for 24 hours, I could not believe that one little patch could do that, like help me so much. Um, and after that, I was always like knowing in the back of my mind that if I only put that patch on, uh, for like, you know, for like the amount of time they, they suggest, like, you know, three, uh, three weeks with the step one and then three more weeks with step two. I took longer. I never just took the three weeks. I didn't double the amount of time, but I wanted to succeed. So I did step one, like say three months and then step two, two months. And now I'm on step three. So I just kept it a little longer than maybe what is suggested, but I wanted to succeed this time more than any other time. Well, it, it works differently for, for everyone, right? You know, I mean, um, maybe not quite to the directions, but it, it seems like it fit your kind of determination, which I think is a big factor in all of this. Yeah, and I didn't want to have a second uh, uh, crutches where um, some people are using this cigarette uh, um, I don't know how to, I don't even know what the, the word is, but those fake cigarettes. Oh, the e-cigarettes? Um, yeah, the e-cigarette. I didn't want to have a second crotch and start using that, and that's why I chose the option of the patch, and it worked. And what I did uh, when um, the Health Clinic of London gave me, are providing me with the patches, I um, they also gave me like this thing to keep in my hand for my nervousness, you know, to keep my hand busy. So it was just like a little puzzle that I would play around in my hand just to to keep my hand busy at first, and uh, and it worked for me, you know. So I I just you know I wish that everybody would try, give it a try. Someone that's never tried before to try the the, the nicodone patch. It's it's unbelievable how it works. I was a heavy, heavy smoker, like two packs a day. So it was one cigarette after the, the other one. Was the patch something you tried at first, or did you kind of try that later on? No, it was the first my doctor suggested, and uh, and I just, me and my one girlfriend decided a New Year's resolution uh, back seven years ago. We we put it together, like we decide, let's go get some patch and try this. And uh, she had quit prior, so she knew that it worked, but she convinced me to try, to give it a try, and uh, I'm really glad she did because it worked, and we both stayed quit for a long time, and she's still a non-smoker years later, and she still, you know, coaches me and helps me through, you know, my ups and downs of life, you know, without having to pick up a cigarette, so... The, uh, uh, a friendship is very important in in that uh, you know in that um, non smoking situation. Definitely, having that second voice uh, can certainly be uh, very helpful. I've, I've had some friends who've called the uh, the smokers helpline over at the uh, the Cancer Society as well. They found that to be uh, helpful as well. Yes, I've, I've done all of the above. I've done the reading the material. I've talked to people over the phone. Uh, I've done email. 
and I see a person at the health clinic every month. Once a month, I go and I sit and I talk about it and tell them my ups and downs and my struggle of life. And recently, well, six months ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, and I still determined to stay a non-smoker, even though, um, you know, I don't see a like some people would say, well, what's the sense now? But I'm still like, like I still decided to be a non-smoker for the rest of my life, whatever left there is, you know. So it's uh, it's great to hear. Congratulations on making it six months. I hope you get another six, uh, Josie. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That's London native Josie Wheatley, and as uh, she just said, she's been smoke-free for about six months. The Canadian Cancer Society Smokers Helpline is a free, non-judgmental service that provides personalized support, advice, and information about quitting smoking and tobacco use. Support is available by phone at one 5333 or online at smokershelpline.ca. You can also text them by texting I. Quit to 123456 each month. Smokers Helpline offers quitters the chance to quit and win through the first week challenge contest. Smokers who register and quit for the first seven days of the month are entered into a draw to win one of two $500 prizes. Uh, we need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin in for Mike on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. One of the best things about this time of year is it's Christmas party season. Christmas parties can be fun. Haven't been to any lately where things got really out of hand, but it's been known to happen. One of the interesting trends that has started to develop, along with people wanting to eat healthier, is people wanting to drink healthier as well. The alcohol alternative industry is expecting this holiday season to be a record setter with more Canadians looking for drinks that are alcohol-free. Hill Street Beverages Company is a Canadian company. They're an alcohol-free beer and wine producer, and their CEO, Terry Donnelly, joins me now. Thanks for your time today. Absolutely a pleasure, Devin. Thanks for having us. Well, I think it's interesting. What made you want to get into the alcohol-free beverage business? Well, the company originally started around an idea that, you know, Designated drivers don't really have anything to drink other than sparkling water or coffee or tea or something that matches what the rest of the people at the party are drinking. So the original idea was around figuring out you know, how to allow the designated driver to, to not be ostracized by what beverage they're holding in their hand. So the company originally came up with uh, non-alcoholic wine and beer and cocktails, kind of pursuing that that particular market. But what we discovered later on was that about forty percent of the population is on a prescription drug medication, a prescription drug regimen that is contraindicated to alcohol. So, so we soon discovered that our consumer was somebody who had been told by their doctor not to drink, and and they wanted to fit into the party and enjoy all of the social occasions where alcohol is usually uh, part of the scene. And so we, we realized there was a much bigger and much uh, broader marketplace than we'd originally uh, assumed. There have been 
alcohol-free beer and wines for a while, but it seems like this industry is starting to see a bit of a, a renaissance and maybe a little bit like what you've seen with uh, the food and beverage, beverage industry in, in general. Yes, and, and you know, I, I kind of pointed to the food industry as a great example. Um, you know, in the evolution of the food business, it really was all about getting safe, mass-produced meals. And, and so that was, you know, how things were in the 70s and 80s. And, and we had great products like Hamburger Helper and Cheese Whiz coming on the market. Um, and, you know, ultimately we ended up becoming foodies and realizing those things just weren't good tasting. They didn't taste any good, and they probably weren't that good for you. So, we, you know, this whole move to organic and healthy and fresh foods and craft beer and artisanally produced wine instead of mass-produced plonk, um, you know, that evolved, and, and so our company actually created the world's first uh, alcohol-free craft beer. And, you know, we've been producing award-winning wine and beer with no alcohol that really appealed to somebody who's actually looking for something that doesn't have any intoxicating effect and still tastes delicious. Is the process different when uh, you're making, I uh, say, like a craft beer that's alcohol-free, different than the, the regular uh, beer-making process aside from the, the no-alcohol part? Well, it, it, it's not really any different. You're still making a great-tasting beer or a great-tasting wine, but, you know, that's where the beer and winemakers stop, and that's actually where we begin. Uh, so we we take a great-tasting craft beer and wine, and then we begin a process to eliminate the alcohol, uh, which completely changes the flavor profile of the beverage. You know, if you have hundred gallons of wine and you take out 14 percent of that that's 14 gallons of alcohol you end up with 86 gallons of something that doesn't taste anything like what it started at so we have to do a lot of work to recipe the products after we've removed the alcohol to make them really great tasting beverages and that's part of our secret sauce as a company do you in that process then have maybe a bit more freedom to do something that uh, craft beer uh, makers can't do with uh, the alcohol component? Well, it's, um, I'm not really sure I would use the, the word freedom. I think it's more just it's different. Um, you know, we have the opportunity to do all the same great styles of beer and wine that, that wine and beer makers do, but we also, you know, are looking at wine, alcohol-free wine-based cocktails and, and using... Uh, you know, the, the wine and the beer in, in products like Rattlers and, and things like that that really are, uh, you know, innovating in the category where really none of the other non-alcoholic brands are, are daring to tread. Um, and where we get to really shine in terms of making things that really taste fantastic uh, and, and deliver a sophisticated, complex, uh, set of flavors that, that really appeal to consumers and, and give you something that you're proud to hold around the dinner table or at a party, uh, you know, that, um, that lets you enjoy the occasion without having to worry about driving home. The, the trend for there to be more alcoholic-free beverages, uh, is this something we're seeing in Canada or is this uh, beyond our borders as well? Oh, this is a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, in the UK, the sales of non-alcoholic beer are up 87% year over year. Non-alcoholic wine is up 47% year over year. 
Um, you know, it's it's the the world of mocktails is exploding where you now have bars in New York at, that serve no alcohol whatsoever. It's nothing but non-alcoholic uh, cocktails and and beer and wine. So you know, in in some areas like in Germany, it's eighteen percent of the total beer industry is non-alcoholic beer. Um, so Canada is actually far behind, uh, but catching up very rapidly. I mean, our our sales as a company grew over 100% in the last 12 months. So uh, we're really excited where this is going. It is a holiday uh, party season, obviously, and I was reading the other day, it's not uncommon for guests to want a alcohol alternative drink, aside from, you know, there being uh, a Coke or a Sprite or, you know, some, some fizzy water kind of a thing as well. Absolutely, and I, I think, you know, what's happening as well this year, which has obviously been on everybody's, uh, you know, the talk of the town, so to speak, is, you know, cannabis is now legal. And so mixing alcohol and cannabis for a lot of people is going to be uh, a new experience and one that could pretty easily get out of hand. So I think it's really smart if you're going to have a holiday party and there's going to be obviously cannabis consumed in a lot of places where it wasn't before, um, you know, it's a great idea to have some great non-alcoholic options available for those who are partaking in the this new uh, post-prohibition era. That's an interesting point. Uh, Terry, I certainly appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Have a very happy holiday. That's Terry Donnelly, CEO of Hill Street Beverages. We need to pause when we come back. More of London Live with Mike Stubbs. This is Devin in for Mike on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. When we got the word last month that Maple Leaf Foods was going to open a new plant in London, you could feel the impact. How could it not? The company announced it would be constructing a state-of-the-art 640,000-square-foot fresh poultry facility in the city's southeast end at a cost of $660 million. Construction on the poultry processing plant is set to begin in the spring on Wilton Grove Road at Highbury Ave. It will have an opening date set for early to mid-2021. When it opens, the facility will directly support more than 1,450 full and part-time jobs, a number the company says it expects to grow as production volumes rise. It will also indirectly support a further 1,400 jobs. Construction on the plant itself is set to generate 300 jobs. The project, coming at a total cost of around $660 million, is being funded largely by the company, with $34.5 million coming from the province, $20 million coming from the federal government, and $8 million coming from an Agri-Innovate Fund loan. In the announcement last month, the company called it the largest single-site investment ever in Canadian food industry history. The new plant won't open for another two years, but if you're curious about it, an open house will be held at the Best Western Lamplighter Inn tomorrow night from 6.30 to 8.30. Ben Brooks is with Maple Leaf Foods. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. More than welcome. Great to talk to you. The uh, the announcement uh, last month had quite the impact in London. A lot of people excited uh, for what's to come. What's the response been like on your end? Uh, we're equally excited, actually, to uh, the announcement two weeks ago uh, about our, our move uh, to the community of London and to build a world-class uh, chicken plant is, is uh, all very exciting. The open... so we've got uh, 
Sorry? Two, two and a half years before we're up and running, but um, absolutely committed to start the dialogue with the community now. The uh, the open house, uh, will it be uh, formal remarks or is it just something where people come in and uh, see and learn about uh, what's to come with the new plant? Well, we're, um, so Thursday night uh, at the open house, we're, I would say it's formal in, in, in terms of the way we've got it set up. I'll be down uh, uh, down there with a number of our company experts, um, but it's basically stations, um, you know, to learn more about the plant, more about some, some of the attributes, whether it's environmental or animal care. Um, so that part's going to be informal. We'll have some material there, talk about the company, and talk about our vision for the uh, London poultry plant. Obviously, people have a chance to learn a little bit more at the open house itself tomorrow, but is there anything people should know about the facility while they're listening today? Yeah, so again, Thursday we'll give a lot of chance to ask more detailed questions, but uh, important things uh, to know is it's a world-class plant. We've kind of scoured the earth looking for the best of the best, Um, and it'll be up and running in the spring of 2021, so a little more than two years from now. 1,450 jobs. It'll be very high tech plant in, in, in all ways, uh, and, the, and the very best uh, plant. We've got, uh, uh, you know, we've got an investment here in fresh poultry, which is uh, Canada's number one protein, and we're really excited, uh, you know, to, uh, to be moving to London. How does uh, London's location help with uh, the poultry? There's lots of uh, farms in the area as well. Yeah, in, ter- in terms of the selection of the site, there's really, really three things that drove that decision. The first was the uh, call it the, the the site itself, which is in a kind of a rural industrial area, uh, with great access to uh, to the 401 to get to uh, to get to the grocery stores and restaurants that we service. Um, and the the second would be the um, uh, the close to our growers, our, our independent chicken farmers. It's almost in the epicenter of 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 all the farms. And the third is is London is a great community with you know a, a pool of very uh, you know skilled. Uh, skilled labor that we're we're uh, excited to bring on board. In terms of some of the plans, will some of those be there for people to see what's kind of come to come, or is that a little bit too early in the process? Yeah, we'll have we'll have some schematics of the uh, of the plant itself, uh, and then talk a little more about some of the uh, you know the processes, whether it's environmental, some of our expectations um, of the plant. You talked about so we'll, we'll have. Six or eight different uh, Maple Leaf folks down there and, and subject matter experts to answer answer questions. You talked about the process to find uh, you know the right place for the for the for the plant and how this is going to be a different kind of plant. How is it different in terms of maybe on the technology side of things? One of the benefits of building a, a brand new plant from scratch is you get to build the very newest uh, technology. And so whether it's it's uh, the IT system in in the facility or it's robotics and automation. Or it's the, the way we handle, uh, you know, the environmental factors. Um, this is the, you know, the best technologies from Europe and the United States that we'll build into this, this facility. I, uh, I assume it's too early for people to be bringing resumes. I've already uh, had people just randomly message the newsroom off and on about that, but uh, it's a little bit ter- too early in the process for that. Yeah, it, it, it is too early, and that, that time will come. And, and again, we are committed uh, to this two-way dialogue, and when the time is right... Uh, we will be uh, all in looking uh, looking to talk to people about their interest in joining the team. Are there ever any questions that you never hear at an open house that you wish people would have asked or you thought people would have asked? That's, that's a great question. Again, this is, uh, this is a bit new territory for me. Um, 
you know, to to enter, entertain, uh, you know, the community and talk about something we're very excited about. Um, maybe ask me that after. <laughs> what, was the, you know, what was the one question I didn't expect? But, uh, is there, uh, like, in terms of the, the community side of things, how important is it to have that good relationship with the community? Obviously, it's good, but um seems like Maple Leaf uh, Foods is really uh, uh, trying to uh, get in with that relationship started early. Absolutely, and it, it, it's in our in our core values is transparency and, and to have a, an open and constructive dialogue uh, with all stakeholders and, and, and a, a the key stick, one of the key stakeholders here is our, uh, you know, our future employees and the city we're going to be doing business in. So we're absolutely committed to that. Uh, this will be the first of, of hopefully many open houses, and um, it's just in our DNA uh, as a company and our values to talk about uh, talk about these things. Well, it uh, should be an informative session. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Devin. That's Ben Brooks from Maple Leaf Foods. We need to pause when we return more of London Live. This is Devin in for Mike on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Welcome back, everyone. Devin Peacock in for Mike. Mike will be back with you tomorrow. Uh, at the start of the show, we talked to uh, Gordon Ozinski from Western University. He is uh, with their uh, space program at Western. I was tempted to ask him, but I didn't. I was tempted to ask him about uh, Steph Curry. Uh, If you didn't hear it earlier this week, there was uh, a lot of buzz because uh, Steph Curry was on this uh, podcast. And on the podcast, he uh, said he did not believe in the moon landing. (laughs) What's I mean, there's layers to this. So what's interesting about that is Steph Curry earlier made fun of Kyrie Irving. These are all NBA players, if you're not a sports fan. Uh, he uh, he made fun of Kyrie Irving earlier for saying he believed the earth was flat. Kyrie Irving has now said he doesn't believe the earth is flat. But Steph Curry, weeks after he makes fun of Kyrie Irving, comes out and says the moon landing never happened. Now, if you hear the audio, because the first thing I did was I went to hear the audio from the podcast, it comes out of nowhere. And he and the other guys on the podcast, which includes Vince Carter, by the way, Raptors fans, all agreed that the moon landing did not happen. So I don't know what's up with that. I don't know if, if I don't know if that's something where they're playing like a super deep cut. And they're just going to try and troll everyone and make us think that they don't think the moon landing happened. And then the relay is, oh, yeah, we do. And you guys are all idiots for for believing that. But it's also, if that is the, the truth, and I'm not saying it is, but if that is what they're going for, it's kind of weird idea to have. Like, hey, we're going to make everyone think we're stupid for thinking the moon landing never happened. Now, there's lots of people who don't think the moon landing happened, and it's it's technically possible. I guess it was faked, but it's, it's it didn't. I'm not even. I mean, lots of things are possible. It was this. It's this huge conspiracy that it did not happen the first time. It's just. I mean, just. I mean. Would, for, for that to be true, for that conspiracy to be true, 
for it to have been a TV production was all faked, you have to assume that everyone involved over decades has chosen not to speak about it, not to say anything about it and continue on the facade of a fake moon landing, which is just, I just, it's too much. So I was curious, I was, I was, I was curious what uh, Gordon would think. I was tempted to ask him, but uh, maybe, that, maybe that'll be a conversation uh, for another day. Not just that, but uh, other parts, but the moon landing happened. By the way, I, I saw the Neil Armstrong movie earlier this year. Not too bad. Not, not great, but uh, not too bad. Uh, my thanks to uh, Gordon Rosinski, uh, to Doug Leahy, to Aidan Anderson, and uh, up to Doug's uh, daughter, Evelyn, as well. Uh, to Dr. Amid Shah, to Josie Wheatley, to Terry Donnelly, and Ben Brooks for coming on the show today. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his work on the program. Today's audio clip is a, uh, audio gem is a clip from WTNH in Connecticut. Their morning show was doing a segment where they were outside trying on some beauty products right after they had a camel on the show, which... I guess happens. Uh, one of the morning show hosts said something her guest thought was a little odd, and that is our audio gem for today. Have a great day. Mike will be back with you tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Do you like a pretty girly smell? Yeah. Okay, this is the pomegranate. After I pet a camel, yeah, I want to smell a little girly. But you know what? Their saliva is good for you. That's what I say. Really? So, yeah. So does it help keep you young? Yes, it does. All right. I'm 85. Lick me, baby. Okay, that was so inappropriate <laughs> for morning TV, but that's okay. You're new.